Let us turn in God's word this morning, first of all, to Genesis 6. And then we're going to read a few verses from Genesis 8 as well. We read from these chapters, Genesis 6 and 8, in connection with Lord's Day 3, which teaches us not only about the source of sin on this earth, but also teaches us about the extent of sin upon this earth. So as we read through Genesis 6 and 8, I encourage you to look for instruction from God's Word about the extent of sinfulness. Genesis 6, verse 1, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. 
but with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And then we'll go ahead to Genesis 8, verse 15. Genesis 8, verse 15. Genesis 7 records the history of building of the ark, the entering into the ark, the flood itself. Beginning of Genesis 8 records the subsiding of the waters, going back down. So the ark is now resting on dry ground. Genesis 8, verse 15 And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful, and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his holy scriptures unto our hearts. It's on the basis of what we have read in Genesis 6 and 8 and many other passages of the scriptures besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day Words day three found on page four in the back of the Psalter. Question six Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator heartily love him, and live with him 
and eternal happiness to glorify and praise Him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fallen disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And in question eight, which we especially focus on this morning, are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we continue proceeding through the first part of the catechism, which has as its subject the misery of man. We noted that the misery of man is his sinfulness. It's because of our sin that we experience misery upon this earth. In the first part of Lord's Day 3, which we focused on last week, Sunday, we faced the question, where does sin come from? What explains the origin or the source of the presence of sin and corruption and guilt upon this earth? And we saw According to the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, that depravity does not have its source in God. God created man good and upright. God created man in his own image, in knowledge of God, righteousness, and in holiness. But instead, the source or origin of our sinfulness comes from that first fall, the entrance of sin into the garden by Adam and Eve. Now, in the service this morning, we focus on the second half of Lord's Day 3, not considering so much the question of the origin of man's misery, but now focusing on the question of the extent of our sinfulness. Last week, we faced the question, why? Why is there sin on this earth? This week, now, we face the question, how bad is it? This is a sobering, sobering subject for us to consider. We're going to be discussing the subject of depravity, even total depravity. And this is hardly a popular subject. The world is not going to teach children of this world about depravity were conceived and born in sin. The world might use different words to speak of brokenness on this earth. It might speak of making poor choices. It might speak of compromises that happen. But the world is not going to talk about depravity. And in the church world, too, the subject is less and less heard about. 
it's difficult to hear about depravity. And I'm aware of that even as I bring the word this morning. You see, by nature, no one likes to receive a criticism. As soon as someone brings a word to us as individuals pointing out a weakness in us, law in us, the temptation immediately is we throw the walls up. We put our defensive barriers around ourselves. And we're not so receptive to the words that are brought unto us in that context. And now here we're going to be discussing depravity. And it's not just a general, universal depravity, though that it is universal, but it's not just a problem out there found in the world. But this is the problem right here in Hall Protestant Reformed Church. There's the problem of depravity. It's in your heart and in mine by nature. So may God grant unto us humble hearts and teachable. May God grant unto us His Holy Spirit to guide us, lead us into truth. And may we then be led unto our only hope, which is in our Redeemer. Confessing our depravity. We use that as our theme this morning. Confessing our depravity. First, total. Second, grievous. Third, confessed. The instruction of Lord's Day 3, especially the instruction found in the final question and answer, is that man is totally depraved. That is to say, by nature, except we are regenerated, we are totally depraved. This comes out in the question. There's, there's a lot contained in the question of question number eight. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? You notice the absolute language that is used in the catechism here. We're so corrupt, not just a little bit, but we are so corrupt that we are wholly incapable, not just that from time to time we are incapable of doing any good, but we are wholly, entirely, every fiber of our being is by nature incapable of doing any good. And then on the other hand, we are inclined to all wickedness, not merely breaking one or two of God's commandments, but inclined to do away with the entirety of the law of God. Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8 helps us to see this problem of depravity, even total depravity. It reveals, these chapters reveal unto us the fact that depravity is a universal depravity. That's one of the senses in which we use that word total. It's a total depravity insofar as it 
totally encompasses this whole earth. There's no one that escapes the reach of this depravity. It's a total depravity. And that comes out in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is the time leading up to the great flood that God is going to send on this earth. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we read, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then two verses later, verse 7, what's God going to do as he sees this wickedness on the earth? Verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And what this leads us to see, beloved, is that the fact that God sent a universal flood indicates that the problem of sin was was universally found. If depravity or even total depravity had been confined to one region, one nation, one culture of people, but others were exempt from having that depraved nature, then Jehovah could have sent a local flood. He had the power to do that. He could have sent a flood that would simply destroy those particular people in one region of the earth that were rebellious. But the very fact that the waters covered the entire face of this earth indicates that every human being upon this earth is depraved. That includes church members. Now at this time, at this point in history, Genesis chapter 6 through 8, the scriptures don't so much use the language of a church as much as that of the covenant or the covenant family. But we understand that as God speaks to the covenant family and as he's dealing with this covenant family, that that's a a picture of how God deals with and how God works with the New Testament church. So as we look at Noah and his family and we see God's words to Noah and the family, we can learn about what is also true of us as members of the New Testament church. Look with me at Genesis 8, verse 21. Genesis 8, verse 21. The flood is finished. Noah has exited the ark along with his family and along with all of the animals. All of the corrupt, reprobate people from off of this earth have been destroyed. The only people that are left are Noah and his family, the church, we would say, are the only people still alive. And now what does God say in Genesis 8, verse 21? And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, 
I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I smite again anymore every living thing as I have done. You could translate that phrase in the middle which says, for the imagination of man's heart. You could translate that also as, even though. Even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, yet, God says, I will not smite again anymore every living thing as I have done. That was God's reflection after the reprobate were destroyed from off of this earth. As God looked on Noah and on Noah's family, God's commentary was of them that their heart was still sinful. The flood was insufficient to remove depravity from off of this earth. Yet there was still that carnal, that depraved nature that was found within Adam. So that as soon as Adam got off of the ark, the very first thing that he had to do was to make an altar, burn up an an offering unto the Lord and seek the pardon of his sins. And the Lord in grace came unto Noah and told Noah, Noah, even though, even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, yet I am not going to deal with you as you you deserve to be dealt but I am going to be gracious unto you and I am going to spare this creation. I'm not going to smite this earth again. That shows to us, beloved, that depravity is not simply a problem found outside the walls of the church. But depravity is something that is found within the hearts of God's own children. As soon as you and I enter through the threshold into the church, by virtue of our presence being there, there is found within the church a depraved nature. This is a personal confession that we make. I am, by nature, corrupt inclined unto all wickedness. Not merely a universal problem, not merely a church struggle, but it's a personal battle as we strive against that old man of sin. Total Depravity not only means every single person head for head on this earth, but total also means this, that every part of my being is rebellious to Jehovah God by nature. It's not simply that at times on the outside I behave in a way that is abhorrent unto Jehovah God, It's not simply that at times a word slips off of my mouth. That really goes against 
my character and my nature. It's not that on the inside I'm good and I'm pure and I'm holy, but every so often externally there's evidence of sin in my life. But total depravity means that the total of man, the total of the parts of man, are all depraved. My nature is depraved. My mind is depraved. My thinking, my willing, my heart, they're all bent against Jehovah God. We see this again revealed in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Imagination. That word literally means form or frame. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that word that as God looked upon Mankind on this earth, God saw that their imagination or the form or frame of man was only evil continually. It's helpful for us to understand that because at times, when it comes to a very practical level, we can struggle with this truth of total depravity. The reality is, man does not always look totally depraved. The minister says on Sunday that We are by nature totally depraved, but then we go home and there are some interactions that we have with people around us and those interactions are pleasant and they're good. And then we can start to wonder, well, how then does this make sense? It seems that there's two opposing realities. The one reality is every man is depraved, wholly inclined, wholly corrupt, inclined to all wickedness. But then on the other hand, we see people do good, even people of the world who appear to be doing good, good deeds. There's a snowstorm. We get snowed in in the house, and who's the first person who comes over to shovel out the the driveway? Perhaps the neighbor who's never darkened the doorway of the church. There's sickness in the home. And who brings over a meal? The neighbor woman who confesses she's an atheist. How then do we make sense of this? That on the one hand there is depravity, even total depravity, but on the other hand, there are professing unbelievers who do apparently good deeds. Genesis 6 verse 5 helps us with reconciling this. As God looked upon this earth, God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Imagination again means form or frame. Think of a builder who is constructing a home. If he's going to construct a sturdy home after he has the foundation laid, it's necessary that he put up a good frame for that home. And so he uses 
sturdy lumber for constructing that frame. He doesn't take lumber that is rotten, lumber that's been compromised in any way, but he uses good lumber to construct that frame. And that's important, even though no one's ever going to see that frame of the home. The outside is going to be covered with siding. The inside, there will be drywall to cover it up. So from an aesthetic point of view, it doesn't really matter what the lumber is that's used for the frame. And yet, from the point of view of the structure of that home, it's so important that he use quality lumber. If he uses lumber that's compromised, he might be able to put a good finish on it. He might be able to give that home to the new home buyer, homeowner, and he enters that home and he's happy for a while, but then a storm comes and the structure of that home is compromised because the frame is rotten. And that's the idea here, beloved, in God's Word in Genesis 6, verse 5. As God looks upon man, God does not merely look at the external, the outward. God does not merely evaluate what we touch with our hands, what we say with our mouths, though that too is called into judgment by God. But God looks deeper than merely what is done outwardly. God looks unto the frame of man. God searches the heart of man. And what does Jehovah God see as God evaluates the heart of man? God sees that every imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. At times we do our best to put on a facade put on a good outward appearance so that others do not see the depth, the extent of our depravity. But we cannot hide from God who searches and who knows. This is, beloved, in brief, our total depravity which is also, we confess, a grievous, grievous depravity. It's grievous for us as parents as we bring children into this world and seek to rear up and teach and provide for those children. The second half of answer seven Hence, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. God's Word teaches that sinful parents beget sinful children. This was evident from the history leading up to the flood. There was... According to Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, there were the sons of God. Sons that confessed their faith in God. Sons that belonged to God. But these sons of God looked out and they saw the women, the daughters of the world. 
Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair. They saw that they were beautiful. God searches the heart. But these sons looked only at the outward, the physical. They saw that they were beautiful. And so then the sons of God entered into relationships, married these daughters of the world. There were mixed marriages that were happening in this history leading up to the flood. Instead of the sons of God seeking and finding a godly spouse, waiting and trusting upon the Lord to provide them with a a spouse, They took matters into their own hands. They went out and they found someone with whom they were not equally yoked. They entered into marriages. And the Scriptures tells us that the fruit of these marriages is that mighty men were born. Verse 4, When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. There's something about this union, this combination of sons of God who married women of the world, who came together, that God so worked through those marriages to produce mighty men, men who had an influence upon that day and age, men who used their powers and their abilities not for the service of God and for His kingdom, but men who used their powers and their abilities in the advancement and development of wickedness upon the face of this earth. And so it is that we as parents confess regarding our children that our children are all conceived and born in sin. This hereditary sinfulness is the occasion for much grief for Christian parents. In first, rather, 3 John verse 4, we confess... I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. If a parent's greatest joy is that his child walks in truth, and the opposite also, oftentimes also, is the case. That the parent's greatest sorrow is when children do not walk in truth. Not only is it earthly parents who are grieved by the reality of the sins which they observe in their own children, which sinful nature they inherit from mom and dad. There's another person who's grieved by the presence of sin. God. God is grieved by the sins of His people. Genesis 6, verse 6, And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. God is capable of grieving For God is a person. He is not merely a power, a force, 
He's not merely an abstract entity, but he is God, the thinking, feeling, willing God. We do not pray to an impersonal force, but Jesus Christ teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to petition our Father who is in heaven. This God and this Father in heaven is, the Scriptures teach us, grieved. To be grieved is to be in pain. It is to be hurt. It is to be sorrowful. Isaiah 54, verse 6, uses this word grieve to speak here of the church. The church is spoken of as a woman here in Isaiah 54, verse 6. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. That's the pain that God experiences in His heart even as a woman is forsaken by her husband and grieved in her spirit because of the neglect of her husband. So it is that our God and our Father in heaven is grieved by the sins of His people. The Word says that He is grieved at His heart. And you could also otherwise translate that He is grieved to His heart. It's not merely, as it were, a superficial pain, a superficial grief that Jehovah experiences, but this is something that goes to the very heart of the Almighty, the transcendent, the Holy God. Why does God grieve? He grieves because He created man good. He created man in His own image and knowledge and righteousness and holiness. God gave unto man everything that man needed for His existence upon this earth. God placed him in a garden. God gave him fruit to eat. God gave him water to drink. God had fellowship. He had communion with Adam there in the garden. God covenanted with Adam and Eve. Man had everything that he needed, and yet there came an intruder into that garden. And that intruder broke into the garden. The intruder led man into temptation, and man fell. And it's not that the children of God were taken handcuffed against their will into sin. But man willingly gave himself over to the intruder. And thus our Father is grieved. We who are the children of God have turned ourselves against 
God. We have willingly given ourselves to the devil. We have given up the image of God in us. We've taken another image, the image of the devil, and become by nature liars. How needful it is that we confess our sin, our depravity, and the grievousness of our sins. Necessary that we confess our sins because the one against whom we have sinned. We've sinned against our Father who is in heaven. We have not merely sinned against an impersonal being. We have not broken the laws of one who has no feelings. But we've sinned against one whom we cry out unto. We've sinned against the one who is Abba, Father. And so it's necessary then that we go unto this one who is our Father and confess unto him, not merely a general confession of our sin, but as well a specific confessing of the particular sins that we have committed against Him. Necessary that we make this confession of sin because we have no hope of ourselves of otherwise finding deliverance from this sin and the guilt which is due unto us because of these sins. We have given ourselves over unto that intruder who is the devil, but now having given ourselves over unto him, it's not as if we can undo the damage and go back into the house and home of our Father who is in heaven. So we are by nature trapped in this pit of our depravity. And so all we can do then is cry out unto our God and our Father not to deal with us as we deserve to be dealt, but graciously to take our sins and remove our sins far, far away from us. Noah, as soon as he got off of that ark, went and he made an altar unto God. Genesis 8, verse 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The very animals that were preserved by that ark, Noah then took those animals, some of them, and offered those animals unto God. Noah offering this sacrifice unto God points us unto the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was Himself holy, who was without any sin or any guile, who by the riches of God's grace came into this world in order to take our sins and the guilt due unto us for them upon Himself. 
hear then the assurance of God's word. 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let us pray. Father and our God in heaven, we plead of thee, may thy blessing rest upon us. We are undeserving of such a blessing by nature. We have forfeited any right to claim divine blessing upon ourselves. But we plead for the merit and for the worth of Jesus Christ. Wilt thou cause the light of thy countenance to shine down upon us? Wilt thou anoint us with thy spirit and forgive graciously our sins? Amen.